Chapter Eleven, Part Two of the Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the Trial, Part Two. They finished their meal and then repaired to the big office room of the house. Several groups of men were there, and loud talk was going on outside. Shefford saw Withers talking to Bishop Kane and two other Mormons, both strangers to Shefford. The trader appeared to be speaking with unwanted force, emphasizing his words with energetic movements of his hands. "'Reckon something's up,' whispered Joe hoarsely. "'It's been in the air all day.' Withers must have been watching for Shefford. "'Here's Shefford now,' he said to the trio of Mormons, as Joe and Shefford reached the group. "'I want you to hear him speak for himself.' "'What's the matter?' asked Shefford. "'Give me a hunch, and I'll put in my say-so,' said Joe Lake. "'Shefford, it's the matter of a good name more than a job,' replied the trader. "'A little while back I told the bishop I meant to put you on the pack job over to the valley, same as when you first came to me. Well, the bishop was pleased and said he might put something in your way. Just now I ran in here to find you not wanted. When I kicked, I got the straight hunch.' Willits has said things about you. One of them, one that sticks in my craw, was that you'd do anything, even pretend to be inclined toward Mormonism, just to be among those Mormon women over there. Willits is your enemy, and he's worse than I thought. Now I want you to tell Bishop Kane why this missionary is bitter toward you. Gentlemen, I knocked him down, replied Shefford simply. "'What for?' inquired the bishop, in surprise and curiosity. Shefford related the incident which had occurred at Red Lake, and that now seemed, again, to come forward fatefully. "'You insinuate he had evil intent toward the Indian girl?' queried Kane. "'I insinuate nothing. I merely state what led to my acting as I did.' "'Principles of religion, sir?' "'No, a man's principles.' Withers interposed in his blunt way. Bishop, did you ever see Glen Nespa? No. She's the prettiest Navajo in the country. Willits was after her, that's all. My dear man, I can't believe that of a Christian missionary. We've known Willits for years. He's a man of influence. He has money back of him. He's doing a good work. You hint of a love relation? No, I don't hint, replied Withers impatiently. I know. It's not the first time I've known a missionary to do this sort of thing. Nor is it the first time for Willits. Bishop Kane, I live among the Indians. I see a lot I never speak of. My work is to trade with the Indians, that's all. But I'll not have Willits or any other damned hypocrite run down my friend here. John Shefford is the finest young man that ever came to me in the desert. And he's got to be put right before y'all, or I'll not set foot in Stonebridge again. Willits was after Glen Nespa. Shefford punched him. And later threw him out of the old Indian's Hogan up on the mountain. That explains Willits' enmity. He was after the girl. What's more, gentlemen, he got her, added Shefford. Glen Nespa has not been home for six months. I saw her at Blue Canyon. I would like to face this, Willits before you all. Easy enough, replied Withers, 
with a grim chuckle, he's just outside. The trader went out. Joe Lake followed at his heels, and the three Mormons were next. Shefford brought up the rear and lingered in the door while his eyes swept the crowd of men and Indians. His feeling was in direct contrast to his movements. He felt the throbbing of fierce anger, but it seemed the face came between him and his passion. A sweet and tragic face that would have had power to check him in a vastly more critical moment than this. And in an instant he had himself in hand, and strangely, suddenly, felt the strength that had come to him. Willett stood in earnest colloquy with a short, squat Indian, the half-breed Shad. They leaned against a hitching rail. Other Indians were there, and outlaws. It was a mixed group, rough and hard-looking. "'Hey, Willets!' called the trader, and his loud, ringing voice, not pleasant, stilled the movement and sound. When Willets turned, Shefford was halfway across the wide walk. The missionary not only saw him, but also Neste Bega, who was striding forward. Joe Lake was ahead of the trader. The Mormons followed with decision, and they all confronted Willets. He turned pale. Shad had cautiously moved along the rail, nearer to his gang, and then they, with the others of the curious crowd, drew closer. Willets, here's Shefford. Now say it to his face, declared the trader. He was angry and evidently wanted the fact known, as well as the situation. Willets had paled, but he showed boldness. For an instant Shefford studied the smooth face, with its sloping lines, the dark, wine-colored eyes. Willets, I understand you've maligned me to Bishop Kane and others, began Shefford curtly. I called you an atheist, returned the missionary harshly. Yes, and more than that. And I told these men why you vented your spite on me. Willets uttered a half-laugh, an uneasy, contemptuous expression of scorn and repudiation. The charges of such a man as you are can't hurt me, he said. The man did not show fear so much as disgust at the meeting. He seemed to be absorbed in thought, yet no serious consideration of the situation made itself manifest. Shefford felt puzzled. Perhaps there was no fire to strike from this man. The desert had certainly not made him flint. He had not toiled or suffered or fought. But I can hurt you, thundered Shefford, with startling suddenness. Here, look at this Indian. Do you know him? Glen Nespa's brother. Look at him. Let us see you face him while I accuse you. You made love to Glen Nespa, took her from her home. Harping infidel, replied Willets hoarsely. So that's your game. Well, Glen Nespa came to my school of her own accord, and she will say so. Why will she? Because you blinded the simple Indian girl, Willets, I'll waste little more time on you. And swift and light as a panther, Shefford leaped upon the man, and fastening powerful hands round the thick neck, bore him to his knees, and bent back his head over the rail. There was a convulsive struggle, a hard flinging of arms, a straining wrestle, and then Willets was in a dreadful position. Shefford held him in iron grasp. "'You damned white-livered hypocrite! I'm liable to kill you,' cried Shefford, 
I watched you and Glen Nespa that day up on the mountain. I saw you embrace her. I saw that she loved you. Tell that, you liar. That'll be enough. The face of the missionary turned purple as Shefford forced his head back over the rail. I'll kill you, man, repeated Shefford piercingly. Do you want to go to your god unprepared? Say you made love to Glen Nespa. Tell that you persuaded her to leave her home. Quick. Willits raised a shaking hand, and then Shefford relaxed the paralyzing grip and let his head come forward. The half-strangled man gasped out a few incoherent words that his livid, guilty face made unnecessary. Shefford gave him a shove, and he fell into the dust at the feet of the Navajo. "'Gentlemen, I leave him to Naste Bega,' said Shefford, with a strange change from passion to calmness. Late that night, when the roistering visitors had gone, or were deep in drunken slumber, a melancholy and strange procession filed out of Stonebridge. Joe Lake and his armed comrades were escorting the Mormon women back to the hidden valley. They were mounted on burros and mustangs, and in all that dark and somber line there was only one figure which shone white under the pale moon. At the starting, until the white-clad figure had appeared, Shefford's heart had seemed to be in his throat, and thereafter its beat was muffled and painful in his breast. Yet there was some sweet sadness in the knowledge that he could see her now, be near her, watch over her. By and by the overcast clouds drifted and the moon shone bright. The night was still. The great dark mountain loomed to the stars. The numberless waves of rounded rock that must be crossed and circled lay deep in shadow. There was only a steady pattering of light hoofs. Shefford's place was near the end of the line, and he kept well back, riding close to one woman and then another. No word was spoken. These sealed wives rode where their mounts were led or driven, as blind in their hoods as veiled Arab women in their palaquins, and their heads drooped wearily and their shoulders bent, as if under a burden. It took an hour of steady riding to reach the ascent to the plateau, and here, with the beginning of rough and smooth and shadowed trail, the work of the escort began. The line lengthened out and each man kept to the several women assigned to him. Shefford had three, and one of them was the girl he loved. She rode as if the world and time and life were naught to her. As soon as he dared trust his voice and his control, he meant to let her know the man, whom perhaps she had not forgotten, was there with her, a friend. Six months. It had been a lifetime to him, surely eternity to her. Had she forgotten? He felt like a coward who had basely deserted her. Oh, had he only known. She rode a burrow that was slow, continually blocking the passage for those behind, and eventually it became lame. Thus the other women forged ahead. Shefford dismounted and stopped her burrow. It was a moment before she noted the halt, and twice in that time Shefford tried to speak and failed. What poignant pain, regret, love, made his utterance fail. Ride my horse, he finally said, 
and his voice was not like his own. Obediently and wearily she dismounted from the burrow and got up on Nakyal. The stirrups were long for her, and he had to change them. His fingers were all thumbs as he fumbled with the buckles. Suddenly he became aware that there had been a subtle change in her. He knew it without looking up, and he seemed to be unable to go on with his task. If his life had depended upon keeping his head lowered, he could not have done it. The listlessness of her drooping form was no longer manifest. The peak of the dark hood pointed toward him. He knew then that she was gazing at him. Never so long as he lived would that moment be forgotten. They were alone. The others had gotten so far ahead that no sound came back. The stillness was so deep it could be felt. The moon shone with white, cold radiance, and the shining slopes of smooth stone waved away, crossed by shadows of pinions. Then she leaned a little toward him. One swift hand flew up to tear the black hood back so that she could see. In its place flashed her white face, and her eyes were like the night. You, she whispered. His blood came leaping to sting neck and cheek and temple. What dared he interpret from that single word? Could any other word have meant so much? No one else, he replied unsteadily. Her white hand flashed again to him, and he met it with his own. He felt himself standing cold and motionless in the moonlight. He saw her wonderful, with the deep, shadowy eyes and a silver sheen on her hair. And as he looked, she released her hand and lifted it, with the other, to her hood. He saw the shiny hair darken and disappear, and then the lovely face with its sad eyes and tragic lips. He drew Nakyaw's bridle forward and led him up the moonlit trail. End of chapter 11, part 2